I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, we'll be looking at verses 25 through 37. You'll recognize that as the very familiar parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And this is part of our series where we're continuing to look at the vision of our church. And we've said that that vision is very straightforward. Our goal as a church is to transform Flower Mound with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a gospel that brings about personal transformation, community formation, social justice, and cultural renewal, not just in our suburbs, but indeed throughout the Metroplex and to the ends of the world. And what we have seen is we've been taking a different biblical text that unfolds one of the values of that vision. And so far, we've looked at different values. We started with the centrality of the gospel. That is so key. It is at the very center of who we are as a church. And then we looked at the importance of worship, and we saw how the gospel is central in worship. And then we looked at fellowship and community, and we've seen, we've seen how the gospel must be at the center of that. And last week, we had the opportunity to look at mission, the idea of reaching out with the gospel. And obviously, the gospel must be central to mission. Well, today, we're going to begin with a new value, the value of service. The value of service. Now, all religions, every religion promotes service. It's clear that when we look at Scripture, we are called to serve one another. But what is it that makes it distinctly Christian? And it's the fact, again, that service has to be centered around the gospel. Indeed, when we understand service in a biblical way, what we're really talking about is living out the gospel among the peoples, living out the gospel among other people. Again and again, you're going to see that the gospel is the gospel of word and deed. It's not simply enough to say and to tell people the message, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. It has to be demonstrated. You hear people talking about doing random acts of kindness. No, it has to be demonstrated day in and day out in every aspect of who we are. The gospel is one of word and deed. It is something we must proclaim, but it is something that we have to live out. And so when we talk about service in a uniquely Christian context, we are indeed talking about living out the gospel among others around us. Now, the question before us today as we turn to this parable of Luke chapter 10, verse 25, is just whom is it that we are to serve? Who are those people? among who we are to live out the gospel, and how far does this obligation to serve them extend? These are the issues that are being dealt with. So let's hear now the familiar parable of the Good Samaritan. May the Lord guide us in the reading of his word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearing, especially as it is preached to us this morning. This is, of course, the very familiar parable of the Good Samaritan. And as we look at it this morning, we are going to see three things. Three things. Whom we are to love, how we are to love, and why we are to love. Whom we are to love, how we are to love, and why we are to love. These are the things that we want to learn this morning and we want to study. So let's look at the very first one. Whom we are to love. And before we jump into the parable... We have to look at it in its context. We have to realize that before Jesus says this parable, he doesn't just throw it out willy-nilly. There's a reason why he offers it up, and it has to do with this exchange that he has with this lawyer. Now, this lawyer, of course, by being a lawyer, tells us that he's an expert in Jewish law, the Jewish law of the Old Testament. Of course, he wouldn't have thought of it as the Old Testament. He just would have been an expert in biblical law and Jewish law. But this man isn't coming to Jesus with a desire to learn anything new. He isn't coming to Jesus looking for information. He isn't coming with a desire to be taught. But as we see here, he wanted to put him to the test. He wanted to trap Jesus with a question. He was trying to test Jesus' understanding of salvation. But instead, it's Jesus who's going to trap him with his own question. Jesus knew that this man was a lawyer. That meant that he was an expert in that Old Testament law. And so he directs the lawyer back to that same law. And with it, he traps him. Let's take a look at the exchange. Verse 25, we read, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we want to look very carefully at that phrase. Because those words, what shall I do, translated like that for us in English, literally are What single act must I perform? What single act must I perform to inherit eternal life? What single act must I perform to be saved? The lawyer is thinking very much in terms of performance, very much in terms of what we would now call salvation by works. What must I do? What single act is required for me to perform that I might be saved? And so what Jesus does is he turns this around and he replies to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? What Jesus is doing is is he's setting him up. Asking me that question, you're implying that the law says that there's something that we must do. I'm going to turn it around, Jesus says. Does the law really say that we are saved by what we do and saved by works. That's what Jesus has done. He's flipped it around. Well, the lawyer does respond correctly. 
And he gives what we now know as the two great commandments, which are in fact a summary of the entire moral law. He begins by telling him that we are to love the Lord your God in all your heart and soul and strength and mind. The first great commandment. Of course, that harks back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Remember, we looked at that just a few short weeks ago. And in that chapter, we saw that we are called to love God with our entire being. That's what it means with heart and soul and strength and mind. With the entire being, we saw that God must be the central, most absorbing interest in the whole of our lives, in every last aspect of our lives. So the lawyer responds with the first great commandment, and then with the second, love your neighbor as yourself, which also harks back, this time to Leviticus 19.18, which Brandon read earlier. And when Scripture uses the word neighbor, it's not used the way we use it in English, referring just to people who live next to us and across the street. Rather, neighbor entails the thought of community, entails the thought of fellowship. It's in that context. So the lawyer has responded correctly each time. And Jesus, then in verse 28, commends the lawyer for the right answer. He tells him, you have answered correctly. But then he turns the tables on him and he puts him on the spot. And he tells him, do this and you will live. You want to know what it is that we must do, that single act that you must perform? Well, you have to do this and you will live. But it's interesting that the word that he uses, the phrase that he uses, do this. I'll give you a little grammar lesson. It's in the present imperative. Now, you know what an imperative is? It is a command. The fact that it is in the present imperative challenges the man's presupposition. He literally asks, what single act must I do? But a present imperative means that this is something that we are to do continually. Jesus is saying is, if you want to live, you must love God in such a way that in every moment of your life, in the things that you say, in the things that you do, even in the things that you think, God is always the most central and absorbing interest in the whole of your life. He is the one whom you love wholeheartedly with all your being, and there never is a moment where you do not love him like that, if you want to live. And by the same token, you are to love your neighbor as yourself every moment. All the things that you do for yourself, all the things that you look out for yourself, you do that with the same speed and alacrity for others as you do for yourself. If you can do this continually, then you will live. Of course, the lawyer quickly realized that he hadn't done these things and he couldn't live up to the law. You're going to notice one thing. Every time that Jesus talks about the law, he always presents how virtually impossible it is to keep it. He always shows us that it is actually beyond our reach. Jesus never waters it down. And the lawyer quickly realized that he could not live up to the moral law, just like none of us can do so. And if he couldn't do so, he would not live. He would not be saved. He could not inherit eternal life. And so Jesus' parable had served this purpose. He had cornered the man. And now the man tried to find a way out. We read in verse 29 that he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to look for an excuse, a way to dumb down the law, which is always what we do when we see just how unattainable the law is for us, what God's requirements of us are, we always try to reduce the law to what is doable, to put the law within reach. 
And it's with that mindset that then he asks in the second half of verse 29, who is my neighbor? It's a very telling question. You see what he's trying to do, right? So Jesus, okay, okay, I have to do this continually. But tell me now, who is my neighbor? And you see, in posing the very question, he's already set up what he wants Jesus to do for him. When you say, who is my neighbor? The answer is, well, this person is your neighbor. If this person is your neighbor, then that means that person is not. Therefore, I can reduce it down to what's doable. Please, and and this man is hoping that the, secretly hoping that this list will be short. These are the people to whom I am obligated then to show love, but by implication, then these are the ones that are not. And I'm off the hook because there's no way that I could love all people all the time in the same way in which I love myself. That's what the man is trying to do with that question. And he's hoping that Jesus will confirm to him that not all these outsiders are his neighbors. Remember, according to Jewish tradition, and it is tradition, it's not in the Bible, Jews were not obligated to love those who were outside their race and their religion. Does that sound at all familiar to what we're dealing with today? In fact, what I want you to realize as we look at this and we talk about service to one's neighbor, this speaks so clearly to the issues that we're facing in our country. In the last 12 years, we have strongly highlighted the tribalization of America. The idea of breaking people up into different groups. And it's been working brilliantly, not beautifully, because it's ugly and it's foul. And it is ungodly. The idea that at one time in our nation's history, there was racism and there really was. And does it continue today? Of course it does, because sin continues today. But we no longer are striving for the ideal of equality in our midst. Instead, we have come up with this idea that we have to separate anyone, everyone. Identity politics has become the norm in our nation. This idea of equity and that we then have to uh, get an equitable situation rather than one of equality. And let me tell you right now, Scripture knows nothing of this. And you need to hear that from the pulpit. Undoubtedly, we will hear people say on the contrary, and they will point and say we are to love our neighbor. It is precisely because of that that we have to reject identity politics. Some of you would have seen uh, something that was publicized this last week. Absolutely horrible. It is a collection of prayers that has been printed in a book form, not something that you found in the corners of the Internet, but something that is sold in mainstream stores. A book called A Rhythm of Prayer, a collection of meditations for a renewal. And one of the prayers in there written by, I'm not sure if I'm going to get the name right, Shaniqua Walker-Barnes, a so-called professor of theology at Mercer University, and she says, Dear God, please help me to hate white people or at least to want to hate them. At least I want to stop caring about them individually and collectively. I want to stop caring about their misguided racist souls, to stop believing that they can be better, that they can stop being racist. People of God, this has no place in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is sin, and it is foul. And the person who's telling you that, for those who don't know me and those who may be watching online, I am, although I would never use this label for myself, but it is the label that I have been assigned by people today. I am a person of color. 
I am a minority. If you were to look in my background, you would see people of dark skin. And there is this lie that somehow that is what is to identify me and to separate me from you. But as we saw when we looked at the importance of community, the only thing that we have in common is our sin. We're all made in the image of God and we're all fallen before God. And the only thing that we have in common in the church is that we have been redeemed and saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what draws us together. So you see, today they were dealing with the same problem as that back then. And back then it shouldn't surprise us that a Jewish man is wondering, I only need to care about certain people. And I only need to be obligated to certain people. Because this is exactly where our thinking has come to today. And the answer has to be what Jesus has given us here in this parable. Because the way he answers the man's racist hatred is with the parable that we saw here. Let's look briefly at the parable. We see the man uh, in the parable, a traveler coming along the road, is beaten by robbers. We read in verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. That road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a rather steep descent through desolate country. Robbery was, was unfortunately a very common occurrence on there. And here he is lying on the side of the road, half dead. And we read in verses 31, 32, two people come by, a priest and a Levite. Now, Jesus completely caught his hearer's attention by mentioning these two men who were leaders in the community, who were religious leaders, who are the people exactly whom you would expect to help. But not only do they not help, but when they see the man, it tells us they literally go to the other side of the road in order to avoid him. It doesn't tell us why. Maybe they thought he might be dead. And if he's dead and they come up to him, they become ritually unclean. And that means that at least for a whole week, they are kept from their family and from all their obligations. And if you're a priest and a Levite, you have work to do in the temple and in the synagogue. And now you can't do that. It's a huge and terrible inconvenience. Maybe that's why. Or maybe they were afraid that if they stopped and got involved, that they too would be robbed and they too would be harmed. It doesn't matter. In any case, the priest and the Levite failed to show love to the man who was lying there. Whatever it was, there were other concerns that were more important to them. This would have been shocking to Jesus' hearers when they heard it. But instead, even more shocking is when he tells them in verse 33, that it was a Samaritan who came along. You see, it's important because when we look at the priest and we look at the Levite, we begin to realize something very important. It doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how what kind of person you are. Jesus begins to expose that there are limits to our help. And we often find that we only help people insofar as it really does not cost us very much. But not so with the Samaritan. He goes and he helps. And what's so shocking is that he's the last person that you would expect to help. Now, let me help you to understand the context. Samaritans and Jews at this time are bitter enemies. Samaritans are in the minority. They are persecuted in Israel at this time. Even while the Romans hold sway over all of Israel and are the ones who control it, the Jews turn around and control the Samaritans. They tell them, you have to sit at the back of the bus, and you can't get the certain jobs. 
They are persecuted under class. And yet this man is the one who stops to help. And not only to help, but he does so at considerable risk and a considerable cost. Now, it's a great story, but you can't really understand the parable outside of the context. The lawyer's question at the beginning set the whole tone. Who is my neighbor? And after Jesus tells the parable, he follows up with this question or with this statement in verse 36. Well, actually, no, it is a question. Jesus delivers his coup de grace when he says, now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Who proved, who demonstrated, didn't talk, demonstrated to be a neighbor? And when you see Jesus doing here, rather than asking who is my neighbor, Jesus has turned the question around. To whom am I to be a neighbor? Rather than saying, who is the individuals or the group of individuals who are my neighbors? Once I know that, I can exclude the others. The, re- the better question that Jesus says is, to whom am I to be a neighbor to? In other words, as John Blanchard, the English author and evangelist, once wrote, the lawyer had asked a question about identifying a neighbor. Jesus now asks a question about being one. The lawyer had wanted a list of all those people who had a claim upon his kindness. A list which he, and unfortunately we, too often secretly hope is rather short. But Jesus has says there is no limit to those to whom we are to show love. Whom are we to love? Who is our neighbor? Our neighbor is whoever has need of you, Jesus says. And that's pretty heavy. And he ends by saying, not just to the lawyer, but to all of us, go and do likewise. And again, the present imperative. This is what your life is like to be continually. It is a lifelong action. The people of God, we ask the question, whom are we to love? Who is my neighbor is not the question, but rather, do I myself behave as a neighbor to those who have need of my love and who have need of my help? That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. It means that you rush to meet their needs with all the same speed and alacrity with which you rush to meet your own needs. When you're hurt, when you're bleeding, you don't sit there and say, well, maybe I'll get around to it on Tuesday. You deal with it right now. When you're hurting on the inside, when someone has harmed you, when somebody has hurt you, when something as life has knocked you down, you address it immediately. And this is telling us that we are to respond with that same force of energy, that we're to put our happiness into their happiness, as Tim Keller once said. Are you and I doing that? Because you see, we have to recognize that these two commands, the two great commandments, love the Lord your God with everything that you have, your whole being, and love your neighbor as yourself, they're inextricably inextricably bound together. It is as you love your neighbor that you demonstrate love to God. It's so easy to say, oh God, I love you. But how do we demonstrate it? We don't demonstrate it by helping God directly. He doesn't need anything of us. 
We don't have to fetch him the newspaper and bring him his slippers after a hard day. God doesn't need any of that. No, the way that we concretely express our love towards God is by showing love to neighbor. The early church father Augustine once wrote, The love of God is the first and great commandment. But love of our neighbor is the means by which we obey it. Since we cannot see God directly, God allows us to catch sight of him through our neighbor. By loving our neighbor, we purge our eyes to see God. So love your neighbor and you will discover that in doing so, you come to know God. And so what Jesus is really challenging him is love your neighbor and love God by doing good to all who come across your path, to all who need your help. The Apostle John said the very same thing in 1 John 4.20. If we say we love God, but hate others, we are liars. For we cannot love God whom we have not seen if we do not love others whom we have seen. That concrete person in front of you is the person whom you are to love. And if you do that, then you express your love to God. How sad it was some 15 years ago when I was counseling a couple, marital counseling, and there was some serious, serious division. And the wife told me that she loved all people out there, just not him. And I had to explain to her, if you cannot love him, then you cannot claim to love all people. That's this abstract idea. I love humanity. It's just people I can't stand, right? Isn't that the expression? And it goes even further, John says, and Jesus here by implication. You can't just love humanity in the abstract, and you certainly cannot love God if you cannot love the person who's in front of you. And you might say, Pastor, that sounds good, but maybe you're making a little bit too much of it. And let me tell you this. When the day comes for Jesus to judge whether you ought to enter into the kingdom, by which standard do you think that you will be judged? Will he come to you on that last day and say, have you attended church? Have you made a profession of faith? Did you fill out a card? Did you give your life to Jesus in a revival meeting? Maybe you gave money to the church. Maybe you volunteered. Will Jesus say, have you been justified by grace through faith? As important and central as that is, is that the question? Do you not know that Jesus will actually judge whether we truly love God by how we love our neighbor? If you doubt it, turn with me to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verse 31. These are Jesus' own words. Not that it matters. All of Scripture is Jesus' words. But this is him speaking to his people in the Olivet Discourse. In Matthew 25, verse 31, Jesus is addressing the end of time. And he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. 
I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was stra- I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. People of God, we need to let the words of Jesus sink in. The standard by which he will measure us on that last day is, how do I know that you loved me? How do I know that you love God? Insofar as you showed love to your neighbor. This is how important it is for Jesus to make this point. Not only in this parable, but in the Olivet Discourse. So when we ask the question, whom are we to love? The answer is simple. Anyone whom God brings across our path who is in need of our help. That's whom we are to love. As we wrestle with that, we then want to move to the second question. How we are to love. Now that we know that we are to love anyone who needs our help, how are we to love that person? We're essentially asking what is necessary in order for us to serve our neighbor. And as we look at the parable, we see that there are two things, two things that must be always operative for us to truly be able to love the person in a gospel-centered way. And those two things are compassion and cost. I'm a Presbyterian, so it takes a while to work even two two words in alliteration, but compassion and cost, you have them there, you should be able to remember those two. Look at verse 33. The Samaritan's actions we see were motivated solely by compassion. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. This was the sole motivation. No one was watching. No one was there. He was not going to receive any merit. He was not going to receive any payment. He was not going to receive any applause or any recognition. The sole motivation was compassion. That's the first thing that we have to have if we're going to really, truly love our neighbor and serve him. The second is cost. It always costs us to serve other people. It always requires sacrifice. If that's, there's no cost there, you're really not serving that, poor, or that person. So what are those costs? Uh, over the years, uh, in my uh, experience, I think I can narrow those down to four things. Four things. And it might be just one of those this time. It might be all of them. It might be a combination of them. But the first one is time. Is time. There's a cost in the time that you spend. The Samaritan had to sacrifice his time to do all the things he had to do for this wounded man. The second one, very common also, is money. You see the Samaritan paying the innkeeper 
two denarii, which is essentially 24 days of lodging, and then he promises to pay whatever else is necessary beyond that. That's in addition to the cost of the bandages and the wine and oil that he used for medicinal purposes and so on. Very often, helping people is going to cost money. A third cost is a particular skill that we employ, an act of service. In other words, it's the thing that you actually do. The Samaritan has to actually bind the man's wounds. He has to take him to the end. There's a particular action that's going to cost you. It'll cost you to listen to that person with emotional needs as they sit there and they pour out your heart. That's a cost. You you can't just blow it off. You need to spend that time listening. Or perhaps it's that time cooking for that person who is in the hospital and just got home and uh, doesn't have a way to take care of himself. Perhaps it's the work that you put in to help uh, a widow in the church. But there's always some particular act of service. That's part of our cost. And the last cost is that of discomfort, of inconvenience, and sometimes even that of risk or danger to your life. By helping the man who was wounded, the Samaritan was placing himself in danger because the robbers could have returned in any moment and found him. Or another set of robbers, that road is well known, or was well known in those days uh, for being a very dangerous road. So he suffers danger. He also suffers great discomfort. Think about it. It says he set the wounded man, on his own animal. And that meant the Samaritan had to walk 17 miles along the, to the inn on the, way to the, on the way back to uh, back home, as it were. So think about the cost. Think about the danger. Think about the discomfort that we see here for the Samaritan. And we have to recognize that those things are also things that we often have to pay. The point is, there will always be a cost to helping others. One of the uh, uh, inconvenient truths, to use a term from a politician once in the past, um, about this is that there really are times in which the cost may be beyond us. There really are a few times where helping somebody is beyond our own means. We simply cannot afford to help that person. But I suspect that in the grand majority of time, we simply don't want to pay the cost. Not that we cannot. We don't want to. And if we're creative, we can find ways around it. Right? So when someone comes and says, this happened to me, and you're looking at, a, for example, a bill, that a medical bill or a, a, a repair bill for a car or something, well, you, you can't come up with $10,000. You might not have it. You simply walk away and say, well, I'll just pray for you, brother. No, but you know what? You can find, I bet you, a whole bunch of other people. And if everybody chips in a hundred bucks, we get there. You can always find the way. I suspect that in most times, even though there really are times when we can't afford the cost, most of the times we simply just don't want to bear it. But when we ask, how are we to love? The way we love is by, first of all, having compassion for that person and then recognizing that it comes at a cost. And those two work together because what helps you to overcome the desire to not bear the cost is your compassion. It's your compassion that will remove all the limits on cost. It's your compassion that will sit there and say, yes, I know that that is a sacrificial cost. It's going to hurt me. It's not just something that I do out of my margin, out of my leftover. It's going to hurt me, but I'm willing to do it out of compassion. And as you wrestle with how virtually impossible that is, 
Let's move to our very last point as we wrap this whole thing up. And that is the question, why are we to love? And it's an important question to ask. Why am I to have compassion? Where does that compassion come from? Because the danger is, even after I've laid all this out, is that you might obey out of guilt. You might obey out of self-interest. Hey, I don't want to go to hell. If this is what Jesus is going to weigh you know, my actions by. And so there's a very real danger that you'll try to obey simply by being religious. But Jesus deals with that purposefully in the story. That's why he used religious people, the priest and the Levite. The people exactly that you expected to obey. And yet those are the very people who did not help because why? It cost them too much. It would have been money. It would have been risking their life. But whatever it was, these religious people were not willing to pay the cost. And it teaches us a very important lesson. And that is that morality, and what is morality? It's simply telling you, be good. Try harder. Get up there and just go do it. Morality can only take you so far. But ultimately, morality never changes a person. And that's really what you and I need. We need to be changed. Because deep inside, you know what? I don't want to help you. I only care about myself. I'm a self-centered cuss. And so are you in our natural state. If you've had children, you figured this out. <laughs> no, no, do not take the toy away from little Sally. She was playing with it first. No, no, mine, mine. And it starts from the, right from the, the cradle and it goes on. Unless something happens to change us. And that's what we need to really understand. If I walk away from this sermon right now, you will walk away either thinking, okay, I can do this. And no, you won't be able to. You'll self-delude yourself and you'll figure out ways like the Jewish lawyer to water down the law to something doable. Or you'll think, I can't do this. And you'll grow depressed and think I can never match up. And what, cho- what chance do I have when I stand before the great king on the last day? And so it's important that we ask the question, where do we find the proper motivation to live this way? Where do I find the necessary enabling and equipping that enables me to do the very things that Jesus is saying to do? And the answer is in Jesus himself. Every time that Jesus, as I said, presents the law, he always shows that it's beyond our ability to keep. Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it say, said, that you're to love uh, to hate your enemies, that to love your friends, but to hate your enemies. But I tell you, you're to love your enemies. You've heard it said, and each time he corrects and he shows the impossibility of keeping the law, and in so doing, he always brings it back to himself, the one who kept the law for us. As Tim Keller once said, if you Well, I'll quote you exactly what he said. You'll never be a neighbor until you get a neighbor. You can't be a neighbor to other people until you recognize that Jesus has been a neighbor to you. It's only when you experience the radical love of Jesus Christ, a love that cost him everything. And it's not until then that you will be empowered to love other people sacrificially. Until then, you'll simply play at the margins when it doesn't cost you very much. Think about what Jesus did for us. 
Jesus had compassion on us, right? We talk about compassion, the very first thing that we need in order to love. Jesus saw us sitting there wounded on the side of the road, half dead on the way to hell. And he had compassion for us. And he came to us, did he not? Even when we were the enemy, even when we sat there and we hated him. Romans 5, 8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We weren't his best friends. We are the ones who hated him, who disobeyed him, who rebelled against him. And yet he sees us there bruised and beaten by our own sin. And he has compassion. And he comes to us, and what does he do? It's demonstrated so well in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. There the apostle says, and he's calling us to a certain behavior, but look at his motivation. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, the priest and Levi can only think of themselves, but Jesus... Jesus put our interests above his own. Jesus cared about us, and his compassion was so much that the price he paid was not just putting himself in danger, not just running the risk of getting hurt, but he knew that it would cost him his life. And he was willing to pay that price for us. His sacrificial and substitutionary death on the cross, where he dies in our place, that's the cost that he was willing to pay motivated and driven by his love for us. And it's only when we grasp the reality of that in our lives that we will be able to do what Philippians says, to look to each other's interests and not merely to our own. And what Paul says in verse 5 of Philippians 2 is so important. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So many translations mess that up. The ESV got it right. So many translations say, have this mind among yourselves, which was also Christ's. In other words, look to Jesus as a model and now go try harder. That's not what it says. The ESV did get it right. Have this mind among yourselves, which is now already yours in Christ. He's the one that grants you the ability. Yes, you do have him as a model, but so much more than that. He's the one who does it for us. And it's only as you put your life and your trust in Jesus Christ that he changes you because that's what you and I need. And he equips you and he enables you to do that, which is not native to your nature, which is to love others even as you love yourself. So it's only when we're able to do that, that we're not just imitating him, but enabled by him, that we can love and serve others out of gratitude for the love that he has shown us. That's how we do it. 1 John 4.19, we love because God first loved us. It's a response to what he's done. Martin Luther once wrote, I am to become a Christ to my neighbor and be for him what Christ is for me. That's the call that Jesus is putting here. It is the only answer to BLM and to all the identity politics and to all the garbage that is out there. 
the only way that we will overcome this is when we begin to see that we're all wretched sinners, equally worthy of condemnation, but Christ has shown us magnificent love. And in the way that he's loved us, we then are to love others, sacrificially and at cost. Why? For the glory of God and in gratitude for all that he's done. That is love lived out because of the gospel. That becomes love alive, love personified and love incarnate. May God, through his gracious Holy Spirit, enable you and I to live and to love in that way.